0: 1979, apart from the movie debuts of Kramer vs. Kramer, Rocky II, and Apocalypse, now I'm dating myself, will also be remembered as my bar mitzvah year. I had been raised in a traditional Jewish family, while not Orthodox, certainly traditional, my mother had come from a small O Orthodox family in Glasgow, my father from a family of non-observant Jews from Germany, And they found the happy place in between those two poles. But my bar mitzvah year was important event in my life as it is for all young Jewish girls and boys. And for me, it was also a decisive one. I knew that being Jewish was to be something deeply, indelibly central to the rest of my life. And so I went searching. The search took me to lots of places, most of them positive, a few of them not so. But that's the nature of a search that not every rock that you will turn over will show you something that you wish you had seen. One example of that was an evening that year in 1979 that I was invited to hear a rabbi speak at a local shul. My parents were not happy I was going, which if I'm being honest here, made it all the more interesting to me. I said yes. The rabbi was Mayor Kahana. And at the end of the speech, I bought one of his books, called the story of the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, that he had organized with the intention of having it protect Jewish homes and schools and businesses in Brooklyn and Queens and the rest of New York City. The story as to why protection was something that people even talked about needing is a whole other story. But suffice it to say that the New York City that you see today is not the New York City that I grew up in. Back then, Times Square, wasn't filled with Olive Garden restaurants or Guy Fieri restaurants and Hershey Chocolate Company stores. It was rough and dirty and dangerous. Times Square and the rest of the city was not a place you wandered around after dark. And whatever Jews had not left for Long Island or New Jersey were living in hot spots of real danger. So Kahano organized groups of karate-trained Jews to patrol those communities. Later, he would go take on the Soviet Union, demanding the freedom of Soviet Jews, going so far as to chain himself to the tires of an Aeroflot jet at Kennedy Airport. Years after, the Russian refusenik, Natan Sharansky, told me that even he had heard of Kahana's crazy chaining episode from the depths of the Soviet prison that he had been remanded to after requesting a visa to immigrate to Israel. It made them feel good, he told me, to know that someone cared. But this message had a darker edge to it as well. This edge would find itself when he moved to Israel in the early 1980s. New York City had emerged out of the bankruptcy that it had in 1979. More money was poured into policing and it became a much safer place to live in. The need for something like the JDL was clearly passed. But Mayor Kahana was a hammer who was always looking for a nail. And he was incapable of changing his message. In Israel, he would find the kind of danger that would suit what he wanted to say. Now, I don't mean this as a history lesson of sorts, but because I just got back from Israel. And with it comes the news of one of Kahana's disciples, fresh from a stunning electoral victory, demanding a sizable role in a new government that he will in fact get. Along with him, by the way, his name is Itamar Benkvir, other religious nationalist politicians were also swept into power. People like Mitzel Smotrich, Avi Maoz, all benefited from from Bibi Netanyahu's skilled use of party agreements to find his way back into the prime minister's office. Bibi Netanyahu won the election, but stands on what may very well become a Pyrrhic victory because these new coalition partners have plans that are both simple and complicated. Simple because they require a few steps to change the face of Israeli democracy and society, and complicated because only fanatics believe that the hardest part of their plans is putting them into place. That's actually the easy part. The hard part is watching how the rest of the world fights back, which is something actually fanatics never actually take into account. Simply put, this is an Israeli government unlike any other country has ever seen in its short history and its lessons may be difficult ones for the people living in the country and for Jews living outside of the country are important to hear. Now, when most non-Israeli Jews visit Israel, they tend to see Israel in but a few ways. The classic way that non-Israeli Jews see Israel is the ancient Israel of the old city of Jerusalem. The wall, Masada, En Gedi, the city of David, which all tell the incredible story of a people who began in that land a long time ago. At the same time, it tells the story of this people's return to a very dangerous place where the unimaginable horror of the Shoah, a grief-stricken nation, literally fights their way back to statehood. Most non-Israeli Jews think of Israel as a country that is filled with either white socialist atheists or ultra-orthodox Jews. But there is an Israel that which lives very much outside of those narratives. And while it is true that there are white socialist atheists and ultra-orthodox Jews who live in Israel, what is more true is that there is a very large spectrum of people who live in between those two polar opposites. There are European descendants alongside Jews who make up the majority of Israel's Jewish population. They are the children and grandchildren of the Middle Eastern refugees who escaped Morocco and Syria, Libya, Iran, Iraq, Yemen, the Sudan, when their Arab neighbors turned on them after Israel's statehood in 1948. And among them, you will find both the traditional and the secular, but more often, in every person, you'll find some measure of each. The other thing that many Jews do when they go to Israel is that they see the country not as it is, but as they dream it to be. In other words, people visit Israel and they end up seeing not the country but a reflection of what we think it should be. I think we get upset when Israel doesn't turn out to be the Hebrew-speaking Switzerland that we dream it. I know why sometimes do. And I lived there for eight years. But all of these angles and stories and perceptions are worthy to talk about, but not this morning. This morning, I want to talk to you about what Israel is post-election today, and perhaps in doing so, how you might see a little of what Israel may become. The first thing is that Israel is not as there are different from me and you. Their identity is not shared with something else like being Canadian and Jewish, Jewish, British and Jewish. The symbols and rituals and story of their Jewish identity is something that manifests itself in daily ways, maybe the smallest of which is the fact they speak Hebrew. For some, of, for some of them, it is of little measure. For others, it is of great measure. But for most Israelis, it lives alongside other priorities as something that they would not live without. Listen to Israeli music to know just how strongly people identify with the religion of the people of Israel. The politicians who resound with the Israeli public are the ones who articulate some kind of meaningful relationship with their Jewish identity. By way of example, the atheist secular parties of labor and merits failed to win even one seat in the Knesset a stunning meteoric drop from the party of David Ben-Gurion. Since 2006, Israelis have lived and continue to live unearthed. That was the year of the Second Intifada, which brought suicide bombers into the heartland of the country. It forced Israel to build a separation wall, negotiate, and then depend on the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, to work alongside Israeli security officials to prevent further attacks. The problem now is, Abbas is very old and the authority is distrusted by many Palestinians as something corrupt and incapable of improving their lives. And waiting in the wings is Hamas, who is ready to sweep into the vacuum, much as they did in Gaza. If you ever wondered why Israelis seem stressed all the time, now you know. But added to this is that Hamas could not exist without the region's most dangerous and powerful entity, Iran. Iran has built an empire that runs from southern Turkey to Lebanon, Syria, and then Gaza. They funnel billions of dollars annually to Hezbollah, Hamas, and Islamic Jihad to upset and disturb and destabilize Israel and the Western powers. And while North American Jews busy themselves with retweeting clips of Kanye West and Alec Jones bathing themselves in anti-Semitic backwash or worrying about who Donald Trump is having dinner with, Israelis literally have guns to their head. Iran's nuclear program magnifies their threat to untold degrees. So these are big threats. Not the kind we can't take the traffic on Eglinton, or our taxes are too high, but the kinds of troubles, the ones are the like of which that we can't fathom properly. The British Rabbi Lionel Blue once said that Jews are like everyone else, only more so. The Israeli election results have installed Israel's most disturbing government in its small history, but the mistake would be to assume that it reflects the entire country gripped with security fears, existential worries, identity passion, they turned by an overall vote difference of 30,000 to voting people who have hammers, who only see nails. Those people now step into the shoes of others who have been much smarter than them, certainly much more experienced than them, and much wiser in the use of power. And those people are now about to learn the difference between campaigning and governing. The country has gotten what it voted for, and we will all see what it brings. But the deeper truth is sometimes countries make mistakes. Sometimes they make big ones, but all societies are messy, imperfect places. And to hold Israel to a different standard is plain wrong. But let's be clear that Israel's lurch to a message of anger is understandable, but regrettable. The consequences of weakening potentially a judicial system that was the envy of the world, of the potential to disturb the careful and often clumsy balance of life with Israeli Arabs and Palestinians, and perhaps most serious of all, that the story of Israel as is a miracle. It might stop sounding like one to some people but perhaps this is the price that Israelis need to pay to better understand the kind of country they want for the future. Maybe you have to stand on the edge of something dark before realizing that that is a place that you never wish to go back to. World history is filled with similar examples, and maybe Israel is like every other country, only just a little more so. One evening last week, after dinner, I was sitting outside with a friend. He's white, but not a socialist, something of an atheist, but deeply identifying as a Jew. The weather was Tel Aviv perfect. And he said to me, you know, I'm afraid after these elections that this country just took a big step to being something like Turkey. And I understood what he meant. He meant an autocratic, dysfunctional, corrupted country. But I told him that I might have agreed with him, except for one thing, and that is Israel is a country populated by Jews. I told him, the Jews won't stand for it. Better isn't only hoped for, we expect it. The country that should have never existed will find its future. After all, this morning in the Torah, we read of the land of Israel being called Makom, the place, Because to give something a name to say is what it is. But to call something a place gives it hope to what it could be. Shabbat shalom.